Welcome to the Cherry Hills Podcast. We're in a series in the book of 1 Corinthians called A Better Way. We're learning that the letter Paul wrote the church in Corinth shows us a better way to be God's people in this world. Thanks for joining us. Well, some of you know that I love studying history, and one of the things you've probably heard about history uh, from your class or back in high school or whatever is that history often repeats itself. And uh, while I think that's somewhat true, I prefer to describe history more like a, a pendulum where we see different movements of history and then we go to one extreme and then that movement needs to be corrected and so we go to another extreme. And I would say that's also true in church history. I'll give you one example. Take evangelism as an example. There's times in the church's history where there's a big movement towards spoken word evangelism. We need to tell other people about the good news of Jesus. And then there's a correction to that where it's like, hey, let's not forget about doing good deeds, about showing the love of Jesus in this world as well. And so there's this constant kind of back and forth, just like that pendulum. Now, why am I sharing this? Because when it comes to the passage we're going to be looking at together today, I think there's been an important and needed correction that's taken place in the last 10 years or so. But my hope is that we can still see the other side of the pendulum. And what I'm talking about is the resurrection of Jesus and what it means for us. If you've been with us for the last year, we've been in a series in the New Testament letter of 1 Corinthians, a series we have called A Better Way. And for the last three weeks of that series, we've been camped out in just this amazing chapter in 1 Corinthians, 1 Corinthians 15, which is all about the resurrection of Jesus. Now, if you were here last week, Chuck did a great job showing us that one of the things the resurrection of Jesus means for us as God's people is that it calls us to live differently now. Right here, right now, the resurrection makes a difference. In fact, if you were here, Chuck used this picture. I'll put it up on the screen as a reminder. We know that in the beginning, God created us to be image bearers of him. That means we were to bring his kingdom into this world. Unfortunately, sin got in the way of that. And so God sent Jesus to restore that, and now he's given us that same mandate to bring the kingdom of God in this world as the first fruits of a new creation. And so he made this little thing here. We're in that little season of the kingdom. But I want to talk about the arrow today at the end of that. That's what we're really going to be looking at. Uh, We're going to continue this idea of the resurrection. You see, Chuck, as reminded us, is calling us to boldly bring the kingdom of God into the mess of this world, and that's a huge movement in the church right now. And it's a great movement. It's an important movement. But here is my main point that I want to make today. While I think it's extremely important that we remember that movement, I think we got to be careful not to get too far and forget the incredible fact that, yes, the resurrection matters for how we live right now, but it also matters tremendously for the not yet. And what I mean is, in the church, you'll notice lately, there hasn't been a whole lot of talk about heaven. I just don't hear much about heaven anymore, and my suggestion is, I think it's because we've shifted so far to the other side, but I think that's a big mistake, because one of the reasons that we can live with such hope in the middle of the mess is because of this promise of heaven. You see, Jesus promised every Christian that things are going to get difficult as we bring the kingdom of God into this world. Some of you know that firsthand. And so what do we have to hold on to as the difficulties come? We have the promise of heaven. I was thinking this week a lot about if you were to make a list of some of the things that make Christianity unique to all the other world religions, the hope of heaven is one of those things. 
If Jesus remained dead in that tomb, we would simply be gathering together, following a list of teachings, a list of rules. We'd be striving to the best of our ability to be good people, hoping that would earn us whatever it is that eternal life looks like. But the gospel says Jesus didn't say, stay dead. And that's good news. He was resurrected. And because of that, our life is a life, not of meaningless activity, but a life of hope. In fact, if you're using your notes with me this morning, one of the things that makes Jesus unique, if you're following, is that we have a hope that goes beyond this life. We have a hope that goes beyond this life. Now, I don't know what you think of when you hear the word hope, but I think our English word has become a little bit weak. When we say hope, we often mean something like, I want this to happen, but I'm not sure. Let me give you an example. I hope that the Vikings destroy the Bears tonight. Now, actually, that's probably not a good example because that is going to happen. So maybe a better example is I hope I get this as a Christmas gift. Now, I'm not sure I'm going to get it, but I kind of hope I get it. That's not what the Bible means when it talks about hope. If you're following on your notes, hope in the Bible is a joyful conviction on the basis of compelling evidence. It's a joyful conviction. It's a, it's a surety based on compelling evidence. And for the last two weeks in chapter 15 of 1 Corinthians, Paul has been laying out the compelling evidence of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And today he's going to finish this idea and give us two reasons for the hope that we can have in this life right here and now. And so here's what we're going to do. We're going to spend time talking about those two reasons from this text. And then, as we've done every week in this series, we're going to look about what it means for us and how we live today. So let me invite you to do, as we always do, we take our Bibles and we turn them to the passage that we're looking at. And the passage this morning is 1 Corinthians 15, starting in verse 35. And if you don't have your own Bible, we always have some in the seat underneath you somewhere around there, and I'd encourage you, why don't you grab one of those, and you can find this on page 934 of those black Bibles. Now, what I want to do is I want to read through this whole text, because it's just so beautiful and so powerful, and then, like I said, we'll come back and unpack it. But before we do that, would you bow, and let's pray together. Lord, my greatest hope is that we don't come here on Sunday morning just to check a box off that yeah, I went to church, I did my duty. No, we're coming here to hear the words of life. And so speak the words of life to us this morning. As we've already said, open our eyes and our hearts and help us once again to be reminded of the hope that we have because of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Amen. Chapter 15, verse 35 starts this way. But someone will ask, how are the dead raised? With what kind of body will they come? How foolish. What you sow does not come to life unless it dies. What you sow, you do not plant the body that will be, but just a seed, perhaps of wheat or of something else. But God gives it a body as he has determined, and to each kind of seed he gives its own body. Not all flesh is the same. People have one kind of flesh. Animals have another, birds another, and fish another. There are also heavenly bodies, and there are earthly bodies, but the splendor of the heavenly bodies is one kind, and the splendor of the earthly bodies is another. The sun has one kind of splendor, the moon another, and the stars another, and star differs from star in splendor. So will it be with the resurrection of the dead. 
The body that is sown is perishable. It is raised imperishable. It is sown in dishonor. It is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness. It is raised in power. It is sown a natural body. It is raised a spiritual body. If there is a natural body, there is also a spiritual body. So it is written, the first man, Adam, became a living being, and the last Adam, a life-giving spirit. The spiritual did not come first, but the natural, and after that, the spiritual. The first man was of the dust of the earth. The second man is of heaven. As was the earthly man, so are those who are of the earth. And as is the heavenly man, so also are those who are of heaven. And just as we have been born the image of the earthly man, so shall we bear the image of the heavenly man. I declare to you, brothers and sisters, that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Listen, I tell you a mystery. We will not all sleep, but we will all be changed. In a flash, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound, the dead will be raised imperishable, and we will be changed. For the perishable must clothe itself with the imperishable, and the mortal with immortality. When the perishable has been clothed with the imperishable and the mortal with immortality, then the saying that is written will come true. Death has been swallowed up in victory. Where, O death, is your victory? Where, O death, is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God, he gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, my dear brothers and sisters, stand firm. Let nothing move you. Always give yourselves fully to the work of the Lord, because you know that your labor in the Lord is not in vain. Whew. Let's dig in. We got two reasons in this t- passage for the hope that we can have. First reason is because the resurrection guarantees the defeat of death. Or as the title of this message is, the death of death. Death. Let me say it again. Death. You like that word? Do you like to talk about word? Humanity's greatest enemy. According to this passage, the Christian now sees death differently. Because of the resurrection, we look at death and we see a defeated enemy. Paul puts it this way in verse 53, if you still have your Bible there. When the perishable has been clothed with the imperishable and the mortal with the immortality, then the saying that is written will come true. Death has been swallowed up in victory. Why does death need to be swallowed up in victory? Because death is our enemy. You have to see death as our enemy. Listen. This is not the way most people talk about death anymore today. People are taught today either to deny death, let's not talk about it at all, or to befriend death. I don't have a ton of time, but I found it so interesting this week to read about some of the changes that have happened in our society right here in the last 150 years when it comes to death. 150 years ago, you didn't talk about things like birth and reproduction in society, but death was something you talked about all the time because it was right in your face all the time. Today, we talk about sex and birth and reproduction all the time, but the one thing we don't want to talk about is death. There's this interesting reversal that's happened. We're more squeamish, we're more dismayed by death than any generation in the history of the world were creeped out by it. We don't want to talk about it. We're afraid of it. 150 years ago, it was so common for families to plan their funerals together. Today, I don't want to think about that. And so we, we put it off. Why is it that you think we're afraid of death? Because if you're on your notes there, deep down, we know. We know death is our enemy. Death has a 100% success rate. 
Interestingly, in the last 50 years, there's been a movement in psychology to address this growing fear of death that we have as a society, apart from religion. People are more afraid of death than ever, and so psychologists have come up with a way of helping people face death. It's literally called the death is natural movement. Professionals are being trained to help people deal with death by telling them death is just a natural part of life. Death is nothing to be feared. Death is just peaceful cessation. Death is a dreamless sleep. Death is just a drop of water going back into the shining sea. Have you heard some of these? Death is nothing to be afraid of. It's just a peaceful cessation of life. From the very beginning of the Bible, we are told, oh no, it isn't. There is nothing natural about death. As a matter of fact, if you take that kind of stance What kind of hope do you have? You'll never get the kind of fierce joy Paul is talking about in this passage. The ability he has to defy death, to laugh in its face here. Now Christianity says death is not something to be denied, nor is it something to be defriended. Why? Because death is not natural. Death is our enemy. And yet Paul has the audacity to say things like, Where, O death, is your victory? Where, O death, is your sting? Can I just give you the modern translation of that? We are the champions, my friends. And then we do our Fortnite victory dance over death, right? And if you don't know what I'm talking about, ask a teenager. The reason Paul can laugh and the reason a Christian can laugh at death is because of the gospel. The same gospel he reminded us of earlier in chapter 15. You remember it in verses 3 through 5? This is the gospel where he says, For what I received I passed on to you as of first importance, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, that's Peter, and then to the twelve. What is the gospel? Jesus Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures. He was buried and he rose from the dead, and because he did... Our enemy has been defeated. Jesus paid it. Jesus fulfilled it. Jesus takes our flaws and our shortcomings and our sins, the things we know we owe him, and he's dealt with it. Death is a spear aimed right at your heart. And Jesus throws himself in front of it and takes it in the chest. That's why he writes in verse 57 these amazing words. Say this with joy and victory. Would you do it out loud with me? But thanks be to God, he gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Do you earn the victory? He gives us the victory. Paul is saying, you got to deal with sin, and Jesus dealt with sin. And because he dealt with sin, he's dealt with death. So let everybody else tell you today, you don't need to be afraid of death because it's natural. You know that it's not. You know it's not. Let everybody else tell you you don't have to be afraid of death because it's inevitable. That doesn't give me much hope. What gives me hope and what I hope gives you hope, if you're falling on your notes, is that we don't have to be afraid of death because it's been defeated. Do you have that hope? It's been about a year since Barb Straub has left us to death. Some of you know Frank and Barb well. Some of you don't know who they are. But let me just tell you, if you ever went up to the hospital during Barb's final days, you were amazed at their attitude about death. Frank would often tell us, stop being so sad. She's just going home. And the nurses and the doctors would look at them and go, 
There's something different going on here. They have a hope that you can't have if you think death is just natural. I want to live with that kind of hope. I wonder what difference we could make in this world if we lived with that kind of hope when we looked at death and we laughed at it because we know Jesus Christ has conquered the grave. Now, that's not the only reason we have unshakable hope. I mean, that's a lot. It's enough for me, but Paul gives us even more reason for hope. Number two here, we will, like Jesus, be resurrected in new bodies. Not only is death defeated, but we will, like Jesus, be resurrected in new bodies. I just got to tell you, it's a timely message for me. Can't wait. Can't wait for those new bodies. I'm sure many of you feel the same way. That's really what this whole first part of the passage is about. One of the things that makes Christianity unique is that when a Christian dies, we don't enter into some vague spiritual existence. Let me just get this out of your head right now. We're not playing harps on clouds. Okay? That's not what heaven is. Paul says our hope goes beyond that. Because just as Jesus Christ was raised from the dead, and as we just saw, he appeared to many in a physical body, so too we are going to be raised from the dead, and we won't just be living in some spiritual state. We're going to get a new body. Apparently, the Corinthians are questioning, I'm not sure about this. How is this even possible? Can you explain this to us, Paul? Why would we even want that? And the reason for this is the Corinthians are immersed in Greek culture, and in Greek culture and thought, friends, the body is bad. The body is something to get away from. It's dirty. It's temporary. It doesn't matter. In fact, for a Greek, the idea of salvation is I want to get away from the physical. And that's what many religions still teach today. Sadly, I think it's what a lot of Christians think today as well. God cares more for my soul than he does about my body. It's not as important to him. But that's not what Christianity teaches. From the very beginning of the Bible, we're told God invented, out of nothing, the physical. And just like the spiritual has been crushed under the weight of sin, so too has this physical world. And just like the spiritual has been redeemed, so too will the physical. And so if you're following on your notes, God does not see the spiritual as superior to the physical. You were created by God, body, soul, and spirit. And you can be redeemed by God, body, soul, and spirit. Now listen, your spirit, if you're in Christ, it's already been redeemed. I love how Brian prayed, right? We were once dead. Our spirits were dead, but now we've been made alive in Christ. The old is gone, the new has come, but the promise here is there's a day coming when your body will undergo that same kind of redemption. The best way I've heard it explained, it's the difference between D-Day and V-E Day. Almost all of you probably know what D-Day is. It's the day when the Allied forces stormed Normandy and they began to take ground in Europe. And essentially, if you read history on that day, the war was won. But you know it still was many, many days until VE Day occurred, the day when Germany finally surrendered. And that's where we're living. We're living in between D-Day and VE Day. The battle's already been won. Christ has secured the victory for us. But VE Day is not here quite yet. But when VE Day comes, we're going to get those bodies. And in these verses, Paul uses three analogies to look ahead with faith and hope and what these bodies will be like. Let's look at them again, verses 36 through 38. How foolish, he says, like they're questioning the resurrection. How foolish of you. What you sow does not come to life unless it dies. When you sow, you do not plant the body that will be, but just a seed, perhaps of wheat or of something else. 
But God gives it a body as he has determined, and to each kind of seed he gives its own body. So what's the first analogy Paul uses to help us think about our new bodies? It's the analogy of a seed. Now just to make sure you're awake, I'm going to do a quick quiz here. I'm going to show you a picture of a seed, and you tell me what kind of plant it's going to become. This one's really easy. Good. You guys are so smart. How about this one? Watermelon. Good. And last, pumpkin. Okay. You guys are great. You're going to be ready for this. You ready? When you plant a corn seed, what is going to grow? Yes. And when you plant a watermelon seed, what is going to grow? So listen, the idea here is when you plant corn, you get corn, not watermelons. When you plant pumpkin seeds, you get pumpkins, not corn. The specific identity of that seed determines the identity of the plant. And likewise, between our body that dies and is buried and the body that rises from the grave, we are going to see a continuity of personhood, but there will still be differences. If you're following on your notes, our new bodies will have continuity with our earthly bodies. It's like, what are you talking about? On the day of Jesus' victory, when we rise in that new body, you will still uniquely be you. You'll still be you. More than that, you'll be the fullness of who you were always meant to be, like a seed sprouting into its destiny. You will still be me, you, no, that was bad. You will still be you, and I will still be me. But the resurrection will make you a better you, and the resurrection will make me a better me. And what that means is I guarantee you I will have a full head of hair. (laughs) Think about Jesus' resurrection body, though, in light of this. Was it the same body that was buried? Trick question. Yes and no. It was completely the same in his personal identity, but completely different in physical quality. In other words, Jesus rose in his body, not in somebody else's body, but like a seed that is planted in the ground, his body was transformed. Paul uses a second analogy in verse 39. Not all flesh is the same. People have one kind of flesh. Animals have another. Birds another and fish another. This is pretty straightforward. All you got to do is look at creation. God has marked each species of animals with a unique distinction of their own. We know a fish is a fish because it has fish skin. We know a bird is a bird because it has feathers and can fly in the same way. If you're on your notes, our new bodies will be distinctly us. And what I mean by that, they'll still be human. They'll still be physical. So this fights against this idea that we're going to be spirits floating around in eternity. That has no foundation in Scripture Just as Jesus' disciples could recognize him, just as Jesus ate a meal with them, so too people will be able to recognize you and you'll be able to recognize them because we will still be us. And then the final analogy he uses in verses 40 and 41, there are also heavenly bodies and there are earthly bodies, but the splendor of the heavenly bodies is one kind and the splendor of the earthly bodies is another the sun has one kind of splendor, the moon another, and the stars another, and, the st- and star differs from star in splendor. So Paul is going from creation to like outer space here, right? The splendor of the sun and the moon and the various stars, they all have their own kind of splendor. And by analogy, if you're on your notes, our new bodies will have some amazing changes. We're going to be changed into bright, stainless mirrors. In fact, I love what Tim Keller says. He says, if you could get a picture of what you're going to be, 
you would be tempted to bow down and worship it right now. Now here's where we get to the point where we're like, tell me what the changes are going to be. I don't know all of them. Scripture doesn't tell us about all the changes. We're going to talk about at least four in a second here, but I like to imagine. Right now, how many senses do we have? We have five senses. That's a gift that God has given us. What if we have a hundred senses in heaven? What if there's a, a thousand senses in heaven? Who knows? I don't know. But we do know it's going to be better. It's going to be better. And this is why we have hope in the resurrection. Please hear it. You will keep your personal existence. Think about that. It's not what other religions teach. The Christian hope is not for nirvana. That will be some disembodied spirits floating around through the afterlife. It's not reincarnation. We will keep our individuality. And yet, we will be different in some incredible ways. Let's talk about four of those ways that he names in verses 42 through 49. Number one, first our bodies will change from being perishable to imperishable. Big words there, but we all understand what this means every time we open up our refrigerator. You open up your fridge, you pull out that jug of milk, it says used by this date, it's past that date, you open it up and you smell it and it's sour, you say, I'm not going to drink this milk. All of us have a used by date printed on us. We, we know this, right? Slowly but surely, our bodies begin to wear down and deteriorate and die. All human beings have a shelf life, and it's less than we wish it was. Yet, here's good news. In our new bodies, instead of winding down, we'll be revving up for all eternity. Instead of deteriorating, we'll be thriving. Instead of dying, we will be more alive than we've ever been before. Second change is in verse 43, we will change from being dishonorable to glorious. What's Paul saying here? My body is dishonorable? No, he's saying because of the fall, because of our present sinful condition, each of us every day struggles with the effects of sin in our life, but in our new bodies, we will be free from the effect of sin forever. A third difference, we will change from being weak to powerful. Weak to powerful. Does this mean we'll become bodybuilders? No. It simply means, as many of us know well, that our earthly bodies right now, oh, they're susceptible to sickness and injury and disease, to errors of reason, to moral failures. But in those new bodies, we will no longer struggle with any of those things. Finally, our bodies will change from being natural to spiritual. This is what Paul argues in verses 44 through 50. And again, this doesn't mean we'll become like ghosts. It's simply what he's talking about is we will no longer be dominated by the power of the flesh at work in our lives. We will be dominated by the power of the Holy Spirit. In other words, the goal that we have as Christians to become like Christ will finally be fully manifested. No longer will we have Adam's DNA bringing us down. We will have Jesus' DNA which will be completely free from the presence and the power of sin. Does this sound good? We have a saying in our society, I want to be like Mike. I don't want to be like Mike. I want to be like Jesus. And that's what this promise is. One day, body, soul, spirit. Now, I'm sure we have all kinds of other questions. I know I do. Will there be pets in heaven? I can think of some other questions. What happens when a child dies? What are they going to be like in heaven? 
great questions. And if that's something you're interested in learning more about, I'd recommend Randy Alcorn's book. It's just called Heaven. But let me just sum up the reason why we have hope with the words of Chuck Swindoll. And if you just need to receive this, close your eyes, listen to these words, let them wash over you. Never again will we worry about terminal diseases. Never again will we cope with the frailties of old age. Never again will we plan funerals, execute wills, and worry about the loved ones we leave behind. Never again will we need to nurse the lingering emptiness and grief we feel when a spouse, child, or a parent is taken from us by the enemy. When we are raised up from the grave or are transformed, the impulse to sin will be eradicated. Never again will we suffer as victims of robberies or violent crimes. Never again will people devastate families through incurable addictions. Never again will marriages be broken, children abused, families abandoned. Instead, sin itself will be vanquished by life, immortality, and eternal righteousness, a victory over sin and death that can come only through our Lord Jesus Christ. Thanks be to God. May he come quickly. But that day's not here yet. We're living in between D-Day and V-E Day, and so we're left with the question, what do I do? What do I do in between those two days? Let me close with two things I think this text means for us today. Number one, we should steward our physical bodies well. We should steward our physical bodies well. The resurrection tells us God likes matter. He created the physical. Even more than that, he became physical to redeem us. Body, soul, and spirit. Christianity, then, properly understood, can never just be about spiritual things. God has an interest in his physical creation, especially in our physical bodies. So that means we were never meant to abuse or neglect our physical bodies. We're to treat them with love and respect and care, using them to bring glory to God. We learned about this last spring in this very letter in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 15 and 20 say, do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ himself? We're bringing Christ with us through our physical bodies. He goes on to say, shall I then take members of Christ and unite them with a prostitute? Never. You were bought at a price. Therefore, honor God with your bodies. What am I talking about here? We should be eating healthy. We should be exercising. We should be getting sleep. We should be seeking to live holy lives in our bodies. It doesn't mean we make our body an idol, but we're to care for it because it's a good gift that God has given us. Now, within this idea, I'm going to kind of cheat and give you a second idea here with the physical. If you're on the rest of your notes, I think the idea is also that we are to minister to other people's physical needs. We take care of our body, but we also take care of other people's physical needs not just their spiritual needs. The Bible doesn't say just save people's souls. It says, doesn't say it doesn't matter if they're hungry or sick or in pain or lonely. No. When Jesus sees hunger and pain and sickness and disease, you can know that he hates it. You can know it's one of the reasons he came to care for the poor to heal the sick and brokenhearted, to set captives free. And so as Chuck reminded us last week, that's what we do, too. We take care of people's physical needs. So can you say in your life, right now, that I'm caring for my body, I'm using it for the glory of God, and that I'm caring for somebody else's physical needs in this world? Am I doing anything to ease the suffering and pain in this world? Am I bringing the kingdom? 
If you're like, I want to do that, but I just don't know how. We don't do a good enough job reminding you that we are partners with at least eight different ministries right here in Springfield that are doing that very thing. And if you'd like to learn how you can get involved in alleviating some of the suffering in this community, I encourage you to go to the website you see up on the page there. It will actually give you like, here's what we need. Here's how you can be involved in helping alleviate some of these things. So that's number one. Number two, second application stated in the very last verse of this text, and I just gotta say, this is sort of like the creme de la creme of this entire chapter. Everything is pointing to this. And so let's read this out loud together on our notes. It says, Therefore, my dear brothers and sisters, stand firm. Let nothing move you. Always give yourselves fully to the work of the Lord, because you know that your labor in the Lord is not in vain. I love this is how Paul ends this. Because so often when we get into discussions about heaven or some of these other things, we love talking about when is it going to happen? How is it going to happen? Is it pre, post, mid? And Paul says, who cares? It's going to happen. We know that. And while all that stuff's interesting, you know what I care most about? How you're living your life this day until that day. For Paul, the hope of the resurrection means practical lived out faith. It means we've got to get away from that pendulum shift that happened in the church where we put our heads in the sand and say, well, the world's going to the hell in the handbasket. Can't wait for that day to come. No, 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 no. We are risk takers. We are sacrificers. We give our lives in obedience. If you're on your notes, we remain steadfast to the work of the gospel. Why? Why can we remain steadfast and stand firm even when it costs us something? Because VE Day is coming. I don't know what you want in your life. But one thing I know I don't want is my life to be lived in vain. That's what he says there at the end of that verse. I want to live a life that counts. I want to live a life where I stand before God one day. And I don't say, well, I know you were asking me to bring the kingdom into the world, but I never got around to it. I want him to stand before me and say, well done. Well done, good and faithful service. Thank you for using your one and only life to bring my message and my hope into this world. I think that's what you want as well. And so let me close with the question this chapter is begging us to ask. Am I living in the unshakable hope of the resurrection? Am I living in the unshakable hope of the resurrection? Now, I know you want to put your notes away. Go ahead. That's fine. But I got two more things to say to you. I'm going to speak to two different people in this room. Right now, in this room, I guarantee you there are some here who are wondering whether you're a Christian or you know that you're not a Christian and you hear this stuff about a guy being raised from the dead, and you go, this is ridiculous. If that's you, I just want you to listen to something. I want you to take a look at, look at all the diets. Look at all the makeup. Look at all the plastic surgery. Look at all the materialism. Look at the desire to always want to buy new things. Underneath all of those things, I just want you to examine it and say, why is that there? Is it possible that God has put eternity in your heart? 
And what you're longing for in this life, trying to extend this life, has already been given to you as a gift. Is it possible that Jesus really did rise from the grave according to the scriptures? Is it possible that he really wants to give you the gift of life here and now, but the gift in eternity as well? It's more than possible. It's what the gospel is. And all you do is you receive it. You say, apart from me, I am nothing. Lord, I have nothing to offer you. But in Christ, who has come for me, I have trusted that he has removed my sin and he has conquered the enemy of death. That can be you today. It's good news. For the rest of us who have received that gift, here's what I would love to say to you. Let's stop living in fear. Let's live with an unshakable hope as we bring the good news of the resurrection into this world because one day we can stand before him and hear those words we all long to hear. Well done. Well done, good and faithful servant. The day's coming. The trumpet's gonna blow. VE day is on its way where God will finally deal the death blow to sin and death. That will be the day of the death of death. Therefore, In light of that day, live today for him and his glory. What does it look like? Well, I think it looks a lot like Romans 12, 1, which I'm going to have us stand and declare together as our benediction. And then we're going to sing a song based on the text we just heard this morning. So let us declare these words, friends. Therefore, I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. Thanks for joining us today. If you would like more information or to stay connected to Cherry Hills Church, please visit our website at cherryhillsfamily.org or follow us on Facebook.